Welcome back. Here is part two with Tara Sunahara. I remember he had a chair actually over my head Mm -hmm. with my back into the glass door. And I was just so afraid that I was going through that glass door. And so I had enough. And I left and I told him I refused to come back until he was sober. Now, I had watched him try to get sober on a couple of other occasions when we would have these big fights and I would leave. But his withdrawals were so, like, violent, shaking and sweating to the point where I was almost like, let me pour you a drink just because it was so bad. Um, But this time I stuck to my guns. I'm like, I can't. I I refuse to come home until you're sober. And you have to be past the withdrawal stage before I'll even consider it. Because I knew I couldn't watch that. 100%. That was just too emotionally challenging for me to watch. And so I left. And um, I left for good that time. And I stayed with my friends again. And he... Granted, he tried to push it a couple of times. Yeah. There was a couple of calls <laughs> yeah. that, but eventually he saw I was I was staying serious. true and yeah. serious this time. So he did go and put himself in rehab, and it was a six month. It was a long pro- program wow. he was in, and um, he did it. And then um, it was probably a month month and a half in Mm -hmm. and he did call me and said that you know he was in the program and they were gonna have family night Uh and he encouraged me to he would really like me to come to this family night and I did and then afterwards I remember us just sitting in the car and talking and he said that he learned that they also offered this codependency program for families of addicts and um, he would like me to go to that and he thought it'd be very beneficial. And yeah. so I did. I looked into it. Um, and it was incredible. It yeah. was it was very intense. So I was a little frightened by that part because it was such an intense program. Um, you had one um, private therapy appointment, a one-on-one appointment. You had a group appointment once a week. These were both weekly expectations. And then you had to attend two Al-Anon sessions in the week as well. Mm-hmm. And there's homework. So, you know, wow. I was like, it was intense. You got like a real education. Mm-hmm. I really did. And I'm, I'm guessing you got some support. I did. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, and, yeah. you know, that group taught me some things that I had never known before. Mm-hmm. You know, before I remember in that marriage, the only thing that I cared about was that he loved me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I'm like, I felt like I could love anyone, mm-hmm. but I had so much baggage that I just needed someone to love right. me. Right. And in that program, I learned I get a voice. Yeah. Yeah. I get to make the decisions mm-hmm. too. This isn't just about him. This mm-hmm. is about me also. Mm-hmm. And am I happy with where I'm at right now? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very eye-opening mm-hmm. for me. Well, that that brings up a bigger discussion actually about codependency. And um, I want to ask Katira a couple of questions. First, about codependency and if she could tell us about that. But secondly, I also want to know how important are groups like this for families of survivors of or survivors of um, addicts? Well, I mean, and I just want to define codependency just in case some of our listeners may not be clear, like what that term means. So, you know, codependence is sometimes described as like an addiction to another person rather than a substance. Um, you know, when some substance abuse um, develops into addiction, even the closest, you know, interpersonal relationships uh, erode. Um, and it can be very difficult for someone, you know, suffering from addiction to build, you know, and maintain healthy relationships. So as a result, you know, codependence and addiction often occur together. Um, you know, and codependency groups can be, like Tara said, extremely valuable because they keep the person centered and like really focused on the things that are important and teaches them to, you know, how to avoid codependent thoughts or behaviors. So that need to control and direct others diminishes and then they come to accept that the only person they can really change is themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, because a person's not gonna change unless they truly want the help. Yeah. You know, and no matter what that partner or support person, you know, does or says, it doesn't make much of a difference. It has to be that person struggling that really wants 
to see things change. It's almost like, that, did it kind of help you realize your own identity, like separate from him? Because mm-hmm. when I, when you're codependent, it's almost like you see yourself with the, you know, like as, a mesh. A pair, yeah. as a mesh. And then it's mm-hmm. like, he was in rehab and you were learning all of these things and you could finally see, oh my gosh, I guess I'm my own person. Yeah. Yeah. I th- How important are these groups for people that are really important yeah i feel like so too. i feel like that yeah, yeah too because a lot of people like in, in these situations don't have the knowledge or they don't know what codependency looks no. like they've never experienced it i mean it's like the first time so where do you turn i right. mean you know yeah your family and friends are saying hey get out of this relationship but like like tara said like i needed love and that's the only thing i focused yeah. on so it's like well if i'm it's- getting what i'm wanting i'm not seeing all the other negative impact of this happening to me it's like asking somebody to build a piece of furniture or build a house without the tools it's like okay how how? okay but how Mm -hmm. you know this sounds great but how so it's almost like it it provides those tools yeah and i mean i was i grew up codependent right i mean you know i remember even as a young child my mom lost her first child to sids he died in her arms when um she was 16 she was Mm -hmm. young mom and the baby was like three months old and died in her arms. And I remember always feeling like, I have to be the good kid to protect my mom. I gotta, you know, be the good kid from my mom. You know, my mom's already dealt with so much. And so from a very young age, I was all about, you know, protecting my mom and doing what I could for my mom. Um, And, you know, eventually I broke free from that because I out of necessity and I had to, but my whole life had been about codependency. You know, and I'm thinking this is a good thing to think about other people, right? Right, right, right. And I had always done that. So trying to break that cycle and because I I didn't know what it was either. I just thought that was a good person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It it makes so much sense. And I feel like it's it's very misunderstood. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. After he got out of rehab, you you did catch him drinking, which was the mm-hmm. final straw for you, and you you did end up <laughs> ending the marriage in two thousand nine. But mm-hmm. during the divorce process, your home was taken from you, and you seemingly were left to sort of start over. So yeah. what happened there? Well, we had bought his childhood home um, from his parents, or at least we bought half of it. Yeah. Because at that time, the market was at the top, you know, it was that big bubble they all talk about waiting for it to burst. So the home was really expensive. We couldn't afford it. So we bought half of the house with the understanding we'd pay the second half, you know, that creative financing that was happening during that time. And so with the divorce, his parents were like, well, you can't have the house. Mm-hmm. You know, he has to have that. You can't have the house. You know, we, mm-hmm. we don't want to continue this relationship with you. And I was the one that could afford it, but oh. I was told I couldn't have it. So, and I was the one that loved that house. Right. He hated that house, but so so be it. Um, so, yeah, I signed over the house to him. And, and, you know, we had been living on separate floors of the house already for about six months. And, you know, and during that time, I'm finishing that program mm-hmm. and also determine I'm not really liking what I'm seeing. Yeah. I always thought as long as he was sober, mm-hmm. our marriage would be perfect. Yeah, That's yeah. all we needed was him to sober up. And I learned, no, no. he's not a very good person sober either. Um, and yeah and then i caught him drinking one day and i'm like that's it i'm done yeah final straw yeah i have waited i have done everything i can to make this marriage work but you know what i'm not happy with you either i need to start over and so um i'm not gonna get the house so be it i'm gonna start over were you still working were you in healthcare yet, or were you still were you yeah. KFC? You were in healthcare yeah. this time. I had been in healthcare then for probably about six, seven years. Okay. Um, let's see, that was 09, 08, 09. So yeah, so about eight years. Okay. By this time, I had transitioned about a year after my brother was killed. Um, I had went into healthcare, and so by this point, I was just getting into my professional career as a safety specialist really making something positive out of that fatality that happened to my brother and i was starting you know i that was a big promotion for me and so i was like you know what it's just not worth it 
I can start over. Mm-hmm. So I moved out in three hours. I wasn't packed and was like, fine, never look back. Keep it all. Yeah. I will start over fresh. Just, yeah, I just need a fresh start. And yeah. so I, I took one. You had one because yeah. after the marriage ended, you. You mentioned you really proceeded with caution when we, when we spoke in the pre-interview, and you were mm-hmm. extraordinarily careful with boundaries when you met and married your current husband. Yes. Is it Aaron? Aaron. Aaron, mm-hmm. in 2012. Um, it really seemed like you had regained your footing at this point. You went on to have children. You bought another home. Mm-hmm. You graduated college. You lost a significant amount of weight, 100 pounds? Yeah, about 100 pounds. And, yeah, so you, and it's funny because when we <laughs> When she's telling me the story in the pre-interview, I feel like I'm on a ride. And it's like there was this little <laughs> pocket of time from the, when she got married up in, you know, about four or five years-ish where it seemed like things were really good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Things seems like things were really good. And um, I don't want to just talk about the bad. So is, is yeah. there anything you want to talk about about that time? I know you went on keto. You lost mm-hmm. a bunch of weight. Your kids were born. And you have a beautiful life in a, in a home, in family, in neighborhood. I know exactly where you live. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, work yeah. was great. Um, I'd always wanted a big family. And with my husband came his two children. Yeah. And then shortly afterwards, we had, you know, my son yeah. and then my daughter. And yeah. so now we went, I literally went from no kids to four kids in four years. Oh my. So that had its own challenges, but it all, its own blessings too. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we bought the house, finished school. I mean, things were life up was and up. pretty amazing. Yeah. It was pretty incredible watching, you know, financially being in a place where it's like oh we can buy this newer home it was mm-hmm. only five years old mm-hmm. and buying all new furniture because we were moving from a two-bedroom apartment into a four-bedroom house mm-hmm. which meant a lot more furniture yeah. was needed yeah. um and to even be able to do those things i mean i've always been about goals mm-hmm. and setting a goal for myself and i was determined like we will get in a new home it's going to be a better home, a stable home. I love our community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a wonderful place to raise a family. Things were looking really good. Yeah, and, and, and I had, re, you know, again, my relationship with my mom had gotten really good. We became super close again, um, and you know, had her over. We've took family road trips, vacations. Everything was fantastic. Yeah, it really seems like it. And it's funny because I looked at your Facebook and I looked at like around when you guys got married, your pictures with your kids, and you lo- I, and I looked at the date. It was around that period of time. I was yeah. like, ah, it's around this period. Because I looked at my Facebook to get your husband's yeah. name. Um, so I was like, oh, look at her. Yeah, this must have been around the period she told me about. Yeah. So um, in 2016, unfortunately, you did receive news about your father. He was diagnosed with stage 3 mucosal melanoma in the sinus cavity and you guys moved him in with you so you could help take care of him did you at that time because of that period of stability did you feel strong enough to take this on you know i don't know i don't yeah. know that i felt like but i knew i had to you didn't think about it you just did it i just did yeah and that was one thing you know my husband is so supportive when it comes to family you step up for your family yeah and my dad's not an easy person and so that was probably the harder part because right before my dad's diagnosis um that thanksgiving i had kicked him out of our house we had had a huge fight of him not having boundaries and just being a little bit rude Mm -hmm. and i had kicked him out of the house and then he got diagnosed and i found out through my mom Mm -hmm. actually when he told my sister who told my mom who told me and i'm like seriously you guys are all out of state i'm right here and i find out through them and so i called my dad and and i told him you know i realize we have our own problems but this is serious Serious. and there's no way i'm gonna let you deal with this on your own Mm -hmm. you know you need a support system i had been in healthcare for a number of years by then so you know i will be the one that i'll be with you every step of the way he didn't move in immediately but when he would have you know surgically they had to do the surgery first yeah it was mandatory there was no way around it this type of cancer is very tricky. 
And um, it starts at stage three, and some people never even find it until it's too late. Um, And so it wasn't a sinus cavity, but he would get these gushing nosebleeds. And so they had to go and surgically remove the, till they got clean margins. And we weren't sure what that was gonna look like, Mm -hmm. because it just really depend on how deep it went in the tissue and so we took dad we did family pictures because we didn't know if he was even going to have a nose left oh my goodness by the time we're done right and so and my dad loved pictures yeah he was a picture <laughs> person for sure and so we did family pictures with me the kids my husband and my dad and my dad loved that we did it the day before his surgery and um, he did have to go into a, an occupational like rehab facility for part of that recovery. Mm-hmm. And then um, afterwards, he was probably cancer, you know, as far as like it was at bay yeah. for a few months. Okay. And then it came back in his eye socket. Oh, mm. yeah. oh man. Yeah, it came back in his eye socket. And this time they had to remove his eye, remove all the way back to the pleura of his brain. And um, it's a very rapid growing. It only has a 5% uh, chance of people living beyond five years. And this is now twice within the same year that um, we're dealing with this. And so they get that removed. And now's at the point where he's having to stay with us more. Because I he lived in Oroville. And it's like for him to drive yeah. back and forth. He had so many appointments yeah. here local. So he was mostly living with us. Um, and his girlfriend would come. And she was a huge godsend. She was very helpful as well with my dad. Because like I said, he's yeah. difficult. Um, and so, yeah, it was... It was hard. It was really, really hard. But I was at every appointment. Um, I knew it was the right thing to do, and my family supported that. It's almost like you wouldn't have it any other way, as hard as it is. When you said it was uh, moved to his eye socket, because in the pre-interview, we talked about how it went to his brain. Is that what you mean, like when it went to his brain, or was this a different part? It was all the way backed up to the pleura that divides the brain from the socket. It's like a thin layer um, that divided it. It did eventually go to his brain, but that was right before he went, right before he passed passed away. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, because in his final two weeks, you said that it was discovered the cancer moved into his brain, and so you insisted that he be admitted into the hospital before passing in July of 2017. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And the doctors kept saying, you'll know when it goes to his brain. You'll know what? No, because his his behavior had become very peculiar, mm-hmm. and it was weird. He would we'd gotten him on hospice by this point, and he he would get so focused on something. Mm. And I remember he wanted this like that labeler. He had this little labeler, and he wanted tape for his labeler, and he kept pushing it. Mm-hmm. So finally, I'm like, "Find out. Let's go to Walmart and get." the The label tape and so we did and he's in the little ride around scooter and he is whipping around everywhere and i'm like he's gonna crash into someone i remember i got so frustrated with him because he only has one eye and so i'm scared and he is just driving erratically and we get home and he starts like talking about stuff that doesn't make sense uh and you, it was just, it was really obvious that mm-hmm. something shifted between Walmart and when we got home from Walmart that his conversations made no sense. Yeah. He would talk about my uncle and an ice cream truck. And I was like, what? Yeah. I, yeah. Was it was weird. From? It was really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then um, I noticed I kept a baby monitor from my youngest daughter that was one of those video baby monitors and so i kept that in his room so i could keep an eye on things he had the hospital hospice bed that was you know um flexible and everything adjustable i should say he also had a bedside commode in there and i remember that that night i kept hearing things in his room and so i'm looking on the baby monitor and i'm seeing him in his underwear 
on the floor with his head underneath the bedside commode and he is looking for something and he's crawling around on the ground and he's talking about gravel and he had been a truck driver and he's yeah i mean it was like he was somewhere completely different and so and he i remember him walking around the house's underwear I know some people do that. Yeah. I don't judge, but we don't do that in we our house. We just don't. <laughs> and so my kids weren't used to seeing that. Right. And and it was like, oh, okay. Well, I think you need to go put some pajama bottoms on. <laughs> and he just wasn't quite getting that. And And then his behavior was just, it was unpredictable yeah it was unpredictable i was i started getting a little worried because i didn't want my kids to remember him of course not like that and then i remember the bleeding got so bad that i was having to stuff tampons Mm -hmm. up his nose because he was just bleeding out of his mouth out of his nose the dinner table it's just dripping and it was just it was hard to watch and but it was also hard for him and it's hard for my kids and the pain was so bad and although i have the medication to give him through hospice um i i knew i was over my head it was i was time. so overwhelmed and in the meantime i'm having my own health challenges yeah and but i i just can't deal with them and i remember calling my uncle and asking him if he could come sit with my dad because I had ignored um, a request to have a colonoscopy because I was having some bleeding and and I wouldn't respond mm-hmm. to their request for this colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. And finally, I got a certified letter mm-hmm. from my healthcare provider. And oh. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> okay, I guess I better make this happen. And... Um, and so I had this appointment, and so my uncle sat with my dad, and I remember going to get this colonoscopy and and just crying because I was so afraid I had mm-hmm. cancer too mm-hmm. because of the way this bleeding was presenting. And um, when I got home, my dad, it just further was escalating. So I called the hospice nurse, and I just told her, I'm like, I can't do this. Yeah. I can't do this. And she's, and I felt a little guilted at first. Like the best place for your dad is in the home. But I always knew I didn't want him to die in my house. Mm-hmm. I didn't want my kids to think back that their grandfather died in their bedroom. I was, you know, and in addition to the fact that I couldn't manage the symptoms, yeah. I couldn't manage his um, bleeding. And so they said that the skilled facilities wouldn't take him because of the bleeding. So the only option was to put him in the hospital. And so I remember they put him on a gurney and took him to the hospital. I followed them over um, and we get him all checked in. It's kind of late. It's like seven o'clock. And all of a sudden my dad is out like almost in a coma, like out, out. And I'm like, okay, this is weird because he was acting so peculiar earlier. And my husband, I'm I'm starving because I couldn't eat before the colonoscopy. Mm, I'm starving yeah. by this point. So we decide, you know what? There's a good chip, uh, fish and chips um, by UC Davis. And so my, my husband goes to pick that up. My dad loves fish and chips. Mm. So we're like, hmm, you might want to grab extra because it would be very much like my dad (laughs) to have it show up and him want my fish and chips (laughs) and we don't have extra. And sure enough, so my husband brought extra fish and chips and sure enough, my dad wakes right up and eats these fish and chips. I'm like, that's pretty typical. Um, And I can't help but laugh about it because I'm like, leave it to my dad. Um, But then he's gone. He's out. He's back, like, almost in this coma state. And um, and he doesn't really wake up after that. There was a moment, my my aunt Yolanda, she was would sing with a threshold choir. And they would come and sing at um, patient's deathbed to help them transition. And she couldn't be there, but she arranged for the local 
threshold choir to come and sing for my dad and they sang some of the songs that he was familiar with and my aunt again she called to be a part of it you know over the phone and she sang some songs as well in spanish that my dad would know and luckily we got a recording Mm -hmm. of that and my dad was like kind of humming along even though he was kind of in this coma state and um anyway when he passed is it took like two weeks yeah and that whole bit was so traumatic because like he would get in these violent coughing fits where he was choking on his own blood and almost jumping out of the hospital bed in these fits mm-hmm. and i'm like i thought hospice was like he was supposed to be comfortable yeah he's so not comfortable mm-hmm. and it was it was hard to watch that but i remember i would leave his room cuz i didn't want him to die alone and but I finally needed to get some sleep because I was going on days with no sleep and I woke up and my friends had come down my best friend had come from Oregon and was sitting there with me and we knew her at the end and I heard his breathing change and so I got up and I went to hold his hand and we all circled his bed and we played the recording of my aunt singing to him and talking about how my brother was waiting for him and couldn't have been a more beautiful send off a more perfect send off for him yeah wow that's really sweet that's amazing wow sorry just taking that in i know (laughs) i have a little add so if i digress no it's okay (laughs) okay for you to pull me back okay um, I do want to transition a little bit over to you about the health issues you started to have. I know yeah. you, you mentioned with you had the colonoscopy. You also were had joint pain, carpal tunnel, uh, symptoms consistent with fibromyalgia. Um, and before we go into this, I actually want to ask Katira something. Because in my observation, it seems to me that it isn't just fairly common, but very common for someone who's experienced years of grief and trauma to develop physical illness. Um, there does appear to be a link between the two, but I'm not sure if it's correlation or causation. What are your thoughts on that, Katira? Yeah, no, there's definitely a link, you know, because with trauma, you know, especially like early life trauma, um, it's linked to, linked to increased rates of like anxiety, depression, suicide, and, you know, PTSD. But that's not all, you know, because trauma, if it's not managed, it can impact your physical health, um, even, you know, years after it's occurred. Um, and there's always been this, this big debate between like medical providers, like, you know, is the body and mind connected? Well, luckily, more and more doctors are discussing the inextricable link between our mental health and physical health. So they come to finally the conclusion that our mind and body are connected after all. So, you know, when we go through a traumatic experience or like a series of experiences, you know, whether it be abuse, parent dying or getting into a car accident, you know, our bodies like trigger like physiological responses as a way of adapting to the to the event or the events. And, you know, however, these responses aren't, they're not always up to us, of course. Um, and it's largely determined by our genes, like how our coping responses are, um, how our ba- brains regulate. Um, these responses are important, you know, mechanism for survival, but sometimes they can work like too well. Yeah. You know, so really the question is, you know, is, you know, is if trauma is endured, if you endured like trauma bad enough to cause health issues, well, the answer is yes. You know, because a traumatic event in itself isn't necessarily the trigger. It's how our bodies, you know, uniquely respond to that trauma that can cause health issues. So, and again, it's hard because all of us respond differently to different stressors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, I'm kind of processing this out loud, but it's like sometimes, you know... Early on, when you're starting to have health issues, sometimes we'll talk about. I think we're going to actually be, I'll talk about this. But you you go to the doctor and you're like, I'm having these problems, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of times they say they're in your head. Yeah. But then um, it, I've always wondered, okay, how can they say they're in your head and they believe that, but then there's a lack of awareness that actually what is in your head and what has happened to you, um, you know, on a trauma level can actually manifest in the body. And there is evidence for that, but I don't know. To me, it seems conflicting. But um, right. uh, from the medical community, from my from my experience with the medical community, but but I don't know. Okay. Anyway, sorry, got a little sidetracked. But um, <laughs> thank you for that. Yes. Um, okay. So 
Tara, you mentioned you, you had gone to your doctors numerous times complaining of your physical symptoms, but you didn't feel like you were, you were taken seriously, at least not initially. What was that response like from your doctor? Well, it's hard because I don't tend to advocate for myself. Right. Or, you know, I, you know. You probably didn't know that you needed to in the beginning. <laughs> exactly. And then I kept explaining things away or I felt like the doctor was also explaining things away with other things I was also experiencing. So like with my carpal tunnel, we didn't know I had carpal tunnel. Um, I, I experienced it when I was pregnant with Jackson, but then after my pregnancy, it went away. And so when I was started having pain in my hands to where it was so crippling that I couldn't even hold a physical book anymore, um, you know, we had no idea. And, and I'm also going through perimenopause. And so a lot of symptoms can be very similar to what those symptoms look like. Um, and I had thought all along that it was perimenopause. Uh, all of my pain thinking okay joint pain that makes sense with menopause Mm -hmm. Um, fatigue makes sense you know I kept explaining it away and then they had been following me for glycoma with my eyes since that um, carjacking and so the frequent headaches I thought was associated with that and I have I have severe dry eyes and so I thought okay also Mm -hmm. probably it wasn't until I had this um, rolling muscle spasm in my gut that um, is unusual. That doesn't happen often. I remember looking that one up. And plus, I don't want to call the doctor often, right? right? Because yeah. I'm like, they're going to think that I'm some hypochondriac, yeah. Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and so I, I don't always share everything until it gets bad. Yeah. Um, so there was an element of all these separate things when I would reach out to them and the menopause that I, I don't know, it was weird, but it wasn't until I had the muscle spasm and I looked that one up, you know, and I know they say you should never go to like, you know, Dr. Google, but I did. And one thing that it came up with was fibromyalgia. And so when I read that and I saw all the other things and I had a friend and I have a friend who has fibromyalgia and I saw what it did to her. And so there was this part of me, I was like, I don't want to have that. (laughs) I do not want to have that because I saw what that did to her, her lifestyle. And, and I am, you know, yeah. I'm way too busy for that one. I'm way too busy for that. I know exactly what you're saying. Um, but I was like, this might be the answer to right. everything. These might not be all uh, menopause related. So I wrote to my doctor and I told her about the muscle spasm. And then I told her, I go, I have a new hypothesis and I'm wondering if all of this happens to be fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. And um, she wrote me back and said, you know, that's interesting. You know, it's really hard to prove you know, there's not like a test. Everything, we have yeah. to rule everything out separately, but we'll we'll look into that. Months go by, nothing's really happened. And so I had, but in the meantime, I broke my ankle. Right. And so I felt like a lot of attention got shifted to that and not on the, the fibromyalgia. Um, but then I started really pushing it. I'm like, do you remember this conversation we had? I need to know what are the next steps. If we've got to rule it out, we need to start. What do we need to do? And so we started with blood work. But uh, a lot of things say that you're in menopause. Well, yeah. we already knew I was in menopause, but yeah. it could be menopause and this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and eventually I had to push again and... Then they did the nerve conduction test, which found that I had severe carpal tunnel and that I needed to have surgery. And I just had those surgeries in March for one hand, in May for the other hand. It did bring great relief. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, she did start me on medication for nerve pain, Mm -hmm. which would be prescribed for fibromyalgia. Um, And, you know, when I really pushed this to her, I did have to say, 
I feel like I'm getting depressed yeah. and getting anxiety because I know all of this pain isn't in my head yeah. and I'm not getting better. And yeah. so. And you're not getting the acknowledgement from a medical professional. It's the one place they tell you to go. It's funny because they say not to go to the doctor Google, but sometimes we don't know right. when to go to the doctor unless we Google it and it will say, mm-hmm. see your doctor immediately if. Yeah. And then you go and they're like, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, um, okay, so you work in healthcare, we know that much, and um, in 2018, you took the initiative to switch your position to one, you worked at, left safety and um, got into um, care? like Care experience. Care experience, yeah, mm-hmm. that allowed for more personal connection on the job, and it did bring you more fulfillment, but then 2020 hit, we all know what happened there, and, <sighs> and yeah. you had two family members pass of COVID, and without going into too much detail, you were on the front lines dealing with some very heavy issues. You were back in survival mode and your health went on the back burner again and um, you broke your foot, causing you to actually develop tendonitis from the boot. Um, And then the woman you referred to as your adopted mom in September of last year, um, this was the year you also broke your foot. The mom of your high school best friend who you became very close with after moving out to California at 17, she died suddenly of cardiac arrest while receiving dialysis, which almost immediately caused you to develop shingles. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I believe shingles will oftentimes result from experiencing an extraordinary amount of stress. Katira, do you know much about um, stress and or how stress can cause shingles to develop in the body? Yeah, I, I have some information too. So just in case lizards are not aware, yeah. you know, if you've ever had the chicken pox as a child, then you're more prone to develop shingles later in life. Um, and they call it the varicella zoster virus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so essentially, like, you know, emotional stress doesn't cause shingles as they know, but shingle viruses are, you know, because it's already laying dormant in your body. Um, and the emotional stress can weaken the immune system, which reduces the body's ability to defend against illnesses. So, I mean, any number of stressors can lead to a weakened immune system. Um, and there's been like several, like research articles that I kind of like read about where um, they kind of link chronic daily stress and highly stressful life events as risk factors for shingles. Um, you know, some of the studies that I kind of read through indicate that stress might be a risk factor if other factors are present, like advancing age, mood disorders, and poor diet. So while they while stress may not be, you know, directly cause mm-hmm. the cause of or trigger shingles, mm-hmm. there's definitely a link between the two. Um, I mean, you know, large amounts of stress can wear away at, you know, anybody's immune system, which lowers its ability to defend against, you know, all sorts of viruses and shingles included in that as well. I guess it depends. I mean, yeah, stress results in different things for different people. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not shingles across the board. Otherwise, we see a bunch of people walking around with shingles. Yeah. But (laughs) I I did. I got shingles when I got very, very stressed at a period of time. So I remember... um, I'm just curious, how was that? For, how was shingles? For, was it a, a bad case of shingles? Or it was, and it was on my knee. It was very painful. Yeah, I didn't awful. know what was going on. Yeah. Um. I. Yeah. It was. It's crazy. It was very it's painful. Yeah. Um, in February of this year, um, it was made clear to you that you, not only were you struggling with your physical health, but as you said, your mental health had really started to suffer and there was some real concern that you could be suffering from depression. Um, can you tell us about the signs and symptoms you experienced at that time and were others alerted to it before you were? Yeah, actually one of my close friends and for you know mentor had noticed on a train ride that I just kind of got quiet. And she was like, this light that had always been around me mm-hmm. was dim. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I'm really worried, I'm really concerned. And and over the course of those five years, I had started gaining the weight back and then some. So that was another sign um, that, of course, you know, your friends are like, wanna talk to you about this, but don't wanna talk to right. you about because it's uncomfortable. Right. Um, and so she showed that, you know, concern. And then in February, I had a class that um, me and a partner from work were presenting on. And I swear, I almost had this out-of-body experience where I'm like off in la-la land, kind of like watching the class. And I am like so not focused on the class. I am just, I can't, I don't even have the capacity to really, you know, teach this class. And then I was like, you better get back with like it, right? Like disassociation, is that what <laughs> right. that, yeah, yeah, that's what that. it sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I was not there. Yeah, I'm sure anyone looking at me 
was like, where is she? Right. You know, because I just wasn't Because usually, I mean, I would assume if you were anything then like you are now, you're a big energy. You have like, you, you bring a lot of energy to every room, every space that you're, that you're, um, that you're in, and especially if you're com- usually used to commanding attention in like a class setting, and all of a sudden you're not. I mean, that's that's um, that's a red flag. Something's up. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it scared me actually. I yeah. I noticed that in myself, and I had and I could tell that the other presenter was getting a little bit irritated. Um, but I do wear a mask, and I hid. I tried to hide what I was struggling with so much because to me that was weakness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I didn't want them to know. Yeah. Um, so afterwards, I went up to that co-presenter and I was like, I want to apologize because I know you had to really take on leading that class and here's what's going on. Um, and, you know, I, I could tell she was like, okay, things are making sense now. Yeah, because yeah. I had been over that month had been even more so like backing yeah. away. I couldn't get my work completed. Um, I was drowning. I was yeah. I was struggling, and which is very un uncharacter uncharacteristic for you. Yes. Um, there were plans to bury your adopted mom, who did pass in uh, in September mm-hmm. of 2022. This past March, mm-hmm. the day before her burial, though your foster dad from Oklahoma, who you had remained close with, passed away. Yeah. It seemed like it seemed like that was a breaking point for you. Like if you needed one, that was it. When you knew you couldn't ignore the toll it, it had all taken um, with, between the grief and the trauma. Um, is it fair to say that that was kind of, because after that, you that's when you really got into therapy and started really turning things around. Yeah. Um, and I was having my first carpal tunnel surgery the next day oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. on my adopted mom's birthday. Oh. So all of those were in the matter of a day apart from one another. Yeah. So yeah, he. I got a call from um, my foster pa- family um, letting me know that he had passed. He had been uh, struggling with cancer for a number of years, but um, his battle was finally over and I knew I was having surgery the next day. So there was no way I could be there. And then we were having mom's burial. Um, so I had surgery in the morning and then went to her burial in the afternoon. Um, and yeah. And I finally had to tell my boss about my depression and anxiety. And, um, I, I was, he was newer at our facility, so mm-hmm. I I didn't feel like a, enough trust in the relationship for the, just the newness mm-hmm. that I could share that with him. But I knew I had to. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was at a point I had to you share had with to, him. Yeah. And so um, he his one question to me is like, what are you doing about it? Yeah. Right. You know this, but what are you doing about it? And so um, I started more actively pushing to get myself into therapy again. Um, which it took a little while to get the right fit, um, but I did eventually, and I have an amazing therapist now good, who good. I adore, and she has been so, so important for me and has made some huge improvements already. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, because you mentioned some of what you learned in therapy, like that the weight gain was like connected yeah. to the trauma you've experienced. And for others listening who may be questioning whether their lifelong or even short-term struggle with weight gain could be connected to some form of trauma, are you comfortable sharing what you learned about that? Yeah, we talked about, you know, my survival modes and how I always, you know, instead of dealing with things in an unhealthy way with like drugs and alcohol and, and other ways that many people would deal with those those circumstances, you know, for me, I always, I buried it differently mm-hmm. and my diet was one area I had control over. Okay. And, um, you know, that was an area that I gave myself some freedom yeah. and it just showed up, mm-hmm. you know, it was a different type of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, one that I think has viewed differently than other types of addiction. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was an area that I was like, this is where I have some control. I'm going to share. My brother is, um, same. He's six foot six and was 350 pounds, a huge, huge guy. He's lost, uh, nearly 150 pounds. Um, diet and exercise is doing really well, but very, very similar to you. Now we've not delved into his, what could be lying underneath all that. Maybe I'll get him in here, Katira, and we could do that. 
but um, see a lot of similarities. For him, he's never touched alcohol, never touched a drug, never touched a cigarette. He's like, he's very OCD about all that stuff. But food, that's his comfort. That's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't do anything else. Let me eat kind of thing. Let, let me do what I want with, you know, this area. And so um, I see a lot of similarities with that. But I would love to, you know, get in get under the hood there and find out what's because there usually is a reason why yeah and not only that but when you're also for me with depression and and all that i was going through i didn't have capacity to even try to stay on a diet or to try to stay that disciplined because i was so stretched thin right and mentally unable and i would start out strong and within a short period of time it was like well I just, I just don't have it in me. You actually mentioned that in your mm-hmm. episode that we did, Katera. You said that you would talk to people and that, like those, not I'm not talking about trauma. I mean, maybe they were trauma survivors, but people that were suffering from mental illness, mm-hmm. um, they, they're so um, the heaviness of their mental illness is such a huge weight that they don't have the capacity to actually mm-hmm. work on their physical, their diet, and their take care of themselves physically. Yeah, they do. So that's common. It's very common. Yeah. The other thing that my therapist shared with me. Um, because of the sexual abuse, yeah, is that um, some people that have gone through that kind of abuse will eat to take eyes off of them. Oh, yeah. I have heard. Or this. Yes. they will become the opposite and not eat to vanish. So it can go yeah, into two different different directions. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought about it that way, uh-huh. but I could understand it. That is fascinating. I, wow. I was going to touch on that a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, tell us. Well, so, you know, again, too, it's, it's been discovered that many studies have like linked weight gain with trauma and, you know, with PTSD symptoms, they say that it's rather than the trauma itself seems, but so rather the symptoms themselves is more related to weight gain than more of the trauma itself. Okay. Um, and you know, the biological pathways, it's really unknown, you know, many scientists have a number of guesses. And one of those is like through the overactivation of stress hormones. Cause I mean, when you're, you know, going through trauma, there's all the stress that's occurring. Cortisol and all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. All of cortisol. Yeah. All of that. Um, but what I was going to say, kind of what Tara touched on is that, especially people who've been through like sexual trauma, um, is that. For one person, weight can represent like a barrier to unwanted sexual tension. But then for another person, weight can signify that they matter and deserve to be seen. Um, you know, and for others still, weight can be a way to feel less vulnerable to physical or emotional attacks. Um, so for people with weight gain and trauma, it can be really kind of like really important to understand like how to resolve the trauma mm. um, that the body may be holding. Um, because once there's an understanding of where it's coming from, then you can increase functioning and achieve a balance of weight and stress hormones. Yeah. And then the other part for me was that um, part of the way I was abused by my mom's boyfriend was he used my weight as a Mm -hmm. way of getting to me. Like he was going to help me lose weight. And then that would take some of the attention off of me. Um, So the weight was always kind of attached to that abuse. Yeah. Oh, wow. But luckily my therapist is also a keto coach. So she has also very helped me be very focused about why it's important for me to give back to my body that has taken so much abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's protected me for all these years. Mm -hmm. So now it's time for me to protect it. It's time for you to protect Mm -hmm. it. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we've covered everything. If you, I mean, but I want to give you the the floor to say anything you want if there's anything more you want to say on the subject i feel bad that we kind of saved it to the end because it is such an important but heavy subject um but i don't want you know don't share anything you're not comfortable sharing yeah in terms of like those who you know the thing that i've learned more than in doing this uh that i ever really realized is that there are so many people struggling and suffering from very similar things Mm -hmm. like and we don't even realize like every other person has a story close to ours in some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. So, but a lot of people they live in shame and they don't they don't want to talk about it, right. and they shouldn't unless they're ready or they should find the right um, forum or the right support group to talk with. 
Is there any advice or anything you could say to them? Because I know there's people listening who feel a connection to you right now. Yeah. Um, I think just knowing that you matter and, you know, I always knew my abuse didn't define me. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really why I always stayed so positive was that I was so afraid that my circumstances for some people has led them to not thrive and to put themselves in very negative situations into their own um, abuse, whether it is alcohol, drugs, homelessness. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that if I went down those routes, then almost the devil wins. Yep. Right? The devil wins, the evil wins. And I didn't want to be a statistic. I didn't want to be one of those. I wanted to be always be still successful despite all of that Mm -hmm. and say, you lost. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. still didn't pull me down. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to go on and do well and protect my family and make sure that they have a beautiful, wonderful life because then I win. Yeah. They win. Yeah. It's amazing that you have you have a lot of self-awareness. You have a lot of just awareness in general mm-hmm. of the world around you and what you need to do in order to get through it. And I just, I really want to commend you because like I said, I've talked to a lot of people and this may be the first time I've talked to somebody who has dealt with their trauma and you have extensive trauma. It's trauma that we haven't even spoken about. Um, and to handle it the way you've handled it, it does show a lot of strength. But I am glad, I mean, with so much strength, sometimes, you know, you're used to being the strong one. And when you're used to being the strong one, you don't think you can ever yeah. be weak enough. You know, you view that weakness and um, as some like as a um, like it's something negative. But sometimes, you know, you don't always have to be strong. Sometimes you need to let others be strong for you. So I'm really I'm really happy to hear that you're on that path to to healing. And we're just we're all cheering you on. Um, on behalf of myself and our listeners, I want to thank you for coming on and telling us your story. You are a bright light, and I have truly enjoyed the opportunity to have this conversation. It really does go to show you guys that we really just never know what someone has walked through. Um, keep that in mind always. I also want to thank our resident therapist, Katira Ross, for joining us and for introducing me to Tara. I really believe that our listeners will walk away with a better understanding of trauma, the different ways it can manifest itself, and the long-term effects it can have on our physical well-being. I know I learned a ton today. Um, For those listening who have gone through something similar, please remember you are not alone. And before we close, I do want to give a reminder that Katera is in the process of opening up her private practice here in Sacramento, in the Sacramento area, in the next couple of months. Depending on when this episode airs, it could be the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure. But... um, For anyone interested, we promise we will keep you posted. So thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next week. That's all for this episode of Humanity Unlocked. Do you have a personal story to share with us? We're all ears. Visit humanityunlockedpodcast.com and send us an inquiry. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a five-star review and hit subscribe to hear weekly episodes of our show.